0: I'm happy to report that to paraphrase Mark Twain, rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. (laughs) Uh, I'm glad to be back from vacation and among you, my friends, and Karen and I had a great time down at the beach, soaking up the sun and the sand and the surf uh, down in Florida, and I think the kids had fun at their grandparents' houses and uh, getting to enjoy that. They went fishing and swimming and sheep rodeoing and all this kind of thing so uh, they had a good time I think um watched some movies and all that um and I I know I've been gone a lot this month but I will not be gone again until the winter so have to enjoy the summer while I can and I hope you have enjoyed uh, getting to hear God's word from some other men that he has entrusted with that responsibility as well um it's, uh, it's good to enjoy God's Word preached regardless of whose mouth it comes out of. Amen? And so I hope you've enjoyed uh, getting to hear from Brent a- again and after several years and getting to hear from Pastor Stephen for the first time. Uh, that was pretty exciting to be able to uh, give him that opportunity. Hopefully he'll have some more opportunities here in, in months to come. Uh, one of the things that Karen and I did on vacation... This uh, earlier this month was we went to Williamsburg and to Yorktown and to Jamestown, some of the early founding important sites there in northern Virginia as we were there with the kids. You know, Yorktown is this great battle where together with uh, our, our allies at the time, the French, uh, we defeated uh, uh, Lord Cornwallis and his army, backed them up to the bay, and um caused them to surrender about 8,000 troops. That was cool. And we got to see Jamestown, the first English settlement in the New World, uh, the ruins of it there. And then Williamsburg, and getting to see some of the original buildings that are there and some of the restorations of some of the others, and places where um, where the ideas that became the Bill of Rights were written and discussed. And I believe that God gave a significant amount of grace to our country in its early days. Uh, The people who fought for and founded our republic were, if not completely biblically faithful Christians, very few of them were that. Uh, But they were at least men influenced by a Christian worldview and biblical principles. But the fact is, they were men, they were not angels. And so their actions, while great and good, also were shot through with sin. Amen? And, you know, as an example, Thomas Jefferson wrote in the second paragraph of his declaration, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are, in, are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, Right? Yet he wrote these words on his home plantation where several hundred men and women were enslaved. And we went to some of these taverns and coffee houses and so forth in northern Virginia there in Williamsburg where men sat around tables and ate, ate food and, and drank, drank their ale or their coffee or their hot chocolate or what have you. And they talked about great ideas and they talked about the need for freedom and for independence. And they, they founded a nation based on capital T truth. That these truths are self-evident. And yet women could not vote. And if you were black, you were not free. And one of the great ironies of history is that even as our founders wrote great words and did great deeds... On behalf of freedom, many of them were served by men and women who were not free in their own homes. And to a great extent, very few of them noticed the huge contradiction between the words that they wrote and spoke and the the things that they fought for and the lives that they lived in private. And in between on the one hand, fighting for freedom, and on the other hand, keeping four million people enslaved. And my point in bringing all this up on this 4th of July weekend is not necessarily to condemn them, but as a warning to us. Because the thing is about humanity and about our sin is that it can blind us to certain things that we ought to be able to see but our culture has a way of normalizing lots of stuff that is terribly sinful and makes us blind to reality and prevents us from seeing life and seeing other people as God sees them. And uh, and I, like I say, I don't highlight the founders and their sin because it is unique, but because it is not and because those men, in many cases, are dear to us. But they were not Orthodox Christians, and Orthodox Christians can be just as blind to the sins of their culture and the way that we treat other people. In fact, that's precisely the issue that is going on in the church at Corinth that we're going to look at today. The people had allowed the values and the beliefs of the wider culture at Corinth to infiltrate The church and affect even the worship of the Lord Jesus and its witness of the gospel to to outsiders and the relationships they had with one another within the church. And so I want you to look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and I want you to see the way that the culture of Corinth has blinded the Corinthian Christians to the sin they are performing even in their worship. Take a look at it. Beginning in verse 17, Paul writes these words, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper that you eat, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, here's a little background information that you may need. In the the way that the early church celebrated... They followed because they were influenced by Jewish people, and Passover was the Jewish festival that was celebrated that gave rise to the Lord's Supper. Remember, it was Jesus and his disciples sitting and eating Passover. And there were certain traditions associated with Passover that were carried on into the early church because that was the origin of the ceremony. And it began with the breaking of bread. And so as they took communion they would they would take the they would take a loaf of matzah bread and they would break it and they would just pass it around and eat it. And then there would be a meal that would follow. And it, they would eat all of them together. And then at the end they would take the final cup, the cup of the covenant and celebrate the bread and the cup wrapped around a, a covenant meal was the idea. But what's happening in Corinth is this, that you've got rich people, who most of whom uh, have servants and so forth, and so that all the daily uh, tasks of life are taken care of by servants, and they're able to be pretty much at leisure in whatever they're doing. And so they can come, and they've got, they're bringing all of their food to the table, and they're eating their food that they have brought for themselves. And then, on the other hand, you've got poor people who have to work for a living, who aren't getting off work until later in the evening, and they're bringing whatever they have, and they're getting to eat whatever they brought. So, you've got within the church a wide disparity between very wealthy people, very well-heeled people, people who would have um, maybe brought steaks, you know some good wine they brought bread they brought pasta you know they put on the spread for them and their family and then you've got poor people and they've got like one loaf of bread they're passing around the table for that family and so what is supposed to be in communion a unifying thing where we all partake of the same bread and we all drink of the same cup and we all celebrate the one Lord Jesus and the one body of Christ to which we all belong. Instead, what's happening is there's a real obvious underlining of the socioeconomic and class divisions among the people. And in fact, some commentators think that because you would have been a wealthy person to have to be able to host the church in your home. You would have had to have a lot of room to host a whole group. And so probably what is also happening is that all the wealthy people are going into the inner room where they are able to recline at the table. You didn't sit if you were rich. You kind of rested on your elbow and you ate off the table like this. And it was kind of this this kind of very relaxed kind of a deal. You know, you'd lay back on a pillow and you know feed yourself, right? Whereas if you were poor, you were in another room and you sat on the floor. And, and that was Corinthian culture, and very likely that is what is happening in the church, is that instead of emphasizing the unity of the body and all sharing together and all enjoying together, what God has blessed us with together, they're emphasizing the divisions and underlining those in a way that becomes very uncomfortable. Uh, And this is the reason why Paul says, I cannot commend you for what you are doing. I I can't cheer for you on this because when you get together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. You make the church worse off By gathering because of what you do when you're together. Now that's pretty bad. I went to church and instead of my life getting better it got worse. The relationships that I have there are damaging to me. And that's what's going on. And they are tearing down brothers and sisters for whom Jesus died in the name of perpetuating cultural prejudices and values that those who are of higher status don't eat with those who are of lower status or who are poor. And what is meant as a ceremony to build up the faith of the believers in Christ instead tears down. And they are divided, Paul says, so that the genuine among them can be recognized. And I think he's being bitingly sarcastic when he says that. That he is saying, oh yeah, well you've got to have your divisions, of course, Otherwise, we wouldn't know who the really spiritual ones among you are, right? I mean, I think it's dripping with sarcasm as he says that. And he said, what he's really saying as he says that is that your faith is either inauthentic or it is deeply immature that you are doing this. And Paul says in verse twenty to emphasize this, he says it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. Because the supper emphasizes the unity that we have in the, in Christ as the body of Christ is not just you know the body of Christ is not just what we eat at the table. It's those who are present at the table are the body of Christ as well. And he says you're you are totally refuting and uh, delegitimizing what it is you do because even as you are symbolically eating the body and blood of Christ whose sacrifice joins us all to his body, you are separating out as unnecessary people who are also with you part of the body. And they divide among, among class and status and money lines and so one man has barely anything and another is drunk from overindulging in his abundance. And the church of God being made up of both the poor and the rich, therefore, is despised. And Paul can barely contain anger that he feels against what they're doing. And his thoughts really couldn't be more clear, could they? Don't you have a a house to eat and drink in? In other words, if all this is to you is just a way to show off your wealth, do that at home. Don't even come. Ooh, that's tough. Those are tough words. Uh, After that, after the rebuke, comes the instruction. And in verses 23 to 27, he's going to give you the pattern for how uh, the practice of the Lord's Supper was originally given, what it was supposed to look like. And he says this. He says, For I received from the Lord... Passage there is is pretty key, especially the words received and delivered. And Paul is writing that sentence in about fifty A.D., which is before the first gospel accounts are being written. First gospel accounts are starting to be written in about A.D. sixty. Somewhere around that time, uh, Matthew and Mark are doing their writing, and then later Luke. And John are doing their writing. They're all written, I believe, between about 60 and about 70 A.D., before the temple is destroyed. But Paul is writing to the Corinthians in about 50 A.D. And and so he talks about what I received and then also what I delivered. And the idea is, is that this is an oral culture primarily. And so things in terms of the Gospels were not written down until the apostles began to get killed off. And then people begin to think, you know what, we need to write some of this down, because, it's because the people who were there and saw Jesus, both minister and raised from the dead, are getting killed off. So we need to write these down and keep record of all of this stuff. But Paul says, I am passing on to you something I received. In other words, I didn't make this up, this didn't originate with me, I received it and I'm giving it to you in the same way that I received it. That this is like a family heirloom, as an example. Maybe you have, maybe you have family silver, or family china, or a family Bible, or some other heirloom that has been passed down from generation to generation. And you, when you receive something like that, you want to pass it down in the same condition and having the same attributes as it did when you got it. You know, if you receive your mother's wedding ring, as an example, you don't, you know, run down to the pawn shop and say, hey, what can I get for this? (laughs) Right? You treasure that. You keep that. You keep it precisely as it was when it was given to you. And Paul is using that as a way of describing what he has that what he has given the Corinthians is exactly the same content, the exact same um, truth that he was delivered to him first, he's giving to them. And he says, He says, Look, this happened on the night Jesus was betrayed during Passover, and the bread is broken, and all eat from the same loaf. Because there is one Savior whose broken body redeems our fallen bodies from sin and makes us part of His body. And we do it in remembrance, celebrating the salvation that Jesus purchased for us in His death. And there's also a meal. It says He took the cup after supper. Now, we don't have a meal here every every week. I think it would be kind of nice if we had a meal in between. But... He says, after the meal, he took the cup, and, and, it, and the cup is the cup of the new covenant, because, and because every covenant, both Old and New Testament, is sealed in blood, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood you look all the way through the Old Testament, you see that whenever there is a covenant made, that there is blood sacrifice that is offered. So when God makes a covenant with Noah, Noah sacrifices. When God clothes Adam and Eve and covers them up from their shame and their sin, he sacrifices an animal and makes garments of skin for them. When God Gives a covenant to Abraham. He he tells him to sacrifice these animals. And then God alone passes between the pieces of the sacrifice. When God gave the covenant to Moses. He seals that covenant in the blood sacrifice of the animals. When a Jewish girl got married. She hung her wedding night sheets outside the house. Because every covenant is sealed in blood. And so Jesus says, I'm giving you my blood to seal the covenant that God is making between you and me, the new covenant. And when you take the cup of the, of the covenant, the cup of, of the, the Lord's table, you are participating in that covenant ceremony. That you are eating and drinking a covenant meal, and the blood of the covenant seals that you are a member of it. That you are a person who has received the covenant that Jesus is offering. And you take symbolically the blood of redemption, the blood of the death of the firstborn son of God who is a new and better Moses who delivers out of slavery to sin and death and hell. And when we do this, we visually enact the gospel. Because it is through the death and the Shedding of Jesus' blood that we are forgiven and redeemed from sin. And we are to remember that when we take communion. And Paul is underlining all this because he says, look, you've forgotten what communion is about. Communion is not about figuring out who is rich and who is poor and making sure everybody knows. It's about remembering the death of the Savior through whose blood we are bought out of slavery to sin and out of the penalty of death and out of a destiny in hell to be brought into the body of Christ which we eat at the table. He says, look, this is what this is about. It's about a visual representation of the gospel by which we are saved. You all have forgotten. And it makes no sense, therefore, that in this, that one of the holiest moments of Christian worship, that you would interact with one another in a way that contradicts the truth that you're proclaiming. And so Paul rebukes them for what he's, what they've done. He calls them back to the original pattern. And then he gives his prescription for what they should do going forward. So look at the text here with me. But if we judged ourselves truly, then we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we would not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Well, first things first, Paul says you got to remember this is not just another meal. This is not just, you know having steak in a different place. This is not just a meal. This is a meal that celebrates the sacrifice of Jesus for us. And partaking of the meal further, because it is that, in a way that dishonors Christ, can result in serious judgment. Serious judgment. Uh, The ESV here makes it clear uh, when it says that some have... Um, the text reads, fallen asleep in Greek. Uh, ESV is interpreting a little bit when it says died, because that is the Christian term uh, that Paul uses for Christians who have died. He says that they have fallen asleep. Because when you're a believer in Christ, you don't actually die in the same way an unbeliever does. An unbeliever uh, experiences death as the penalty for sin and goes to hell. That is death. But a believer doesn't experience it that way. And so he refers to it and says that they have fallen asleep. They have experienced God's judgment. Because here's the deal. He says you you eat and you drink in an unworthy manner of the table of the Lord. And so some of you are weak. In other words, some of you are not, not doing all that well. And some of you are sick. Some of you have become ill as a result. And some of you have fallen asleep. Some of you have died that God has exercised his judgment on you. Why would that be a judgment, by the way? It's because if you check out of this life ahead of, when, uh, ahead of when you normally would, you miss out on all kinds of opportunity for both God's blessing here and now and his reward in eternity. And so John talks about the same thing in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. He talks about the sin that leads to death. And this is an example of that in the Scriptures. That if you are a believer and you continue in rebellion long enough or your sin is serious enough, God will, as an act of mercy, rather than break covenant with you, take you home. And that's, that's in some ways a good thing. Hey, I went to heaven. On the other hand, it's a negative thing in that you miss out on opportunity for God's blessing and His reward. And even in the midst of talking about judgment, Paul gives a note of grace. If you look at this, um, verse 32. Verse 31, he says, judge yourself so that you don't experience God's judgment. Verse 32, he says, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, God's judgment of believers and God's judgment of unbelievers is not the same. God's judgment of unbelievers, as he talks about here in verse 32, is con- condemnation. Unbelievers die and are sentenced to eternity in hell because of their rebellion for their life with no repentance. He says, but if we're disciplined by the Lord, even if we die as a matter of discipline before the Lord, he says, we die in a different way. It's discipline. It's not it's not judgment in the same way. And we are not condemned in the same way that they are. In other words, if a person died, he's telling the folks at Corinth, if somebody died as a result of their sin, they didn't go to hell. They went into the presence of the Lord. However, it's still something that you want to live as long as God had planned for you to live. And you want to experience all the blessing in time and all of the reward in eternity that you can experience. And you don't want to be subject to God's judgment, his discipline. Now, on the positive side, he says, wait for one another, which um, I take it to mean that he's saying, look, when you come together, everybody eat together. You know, uh, do pot providence, pot luck, you know, whatever you, however you want to define that. He's saying, "Don't, don't take this opportunity to, to uh, underline the divisions between rich and poor, go ahead and share with each other. Wait for one another. You know, if, you're the, if you get there early, don't go, hey, more for me. Uh, <laughs> wait for everybody else. And share together. That the, that the idea is, is that the unity of the body would be demonstrated by how you behave as well as what you're doing says, if anybody is hungry, eat at home. In other words, I think he's saying something like this, that if you're so hungry that you can't come to worship and, and wait and share with your brothers and sisters, then stay home and eat there. Better that you defile, better that you do that than that you defile the worship of the body of Christ with your greed and selfishness, right? Now, uh, You may be wondering, okay, how exactly does this fit in with me? Because we're not even having a meal at communion. Maybe something we should consider. But nevertheless, he says, you're probably thinking, how does this relate? Well, one of the things is this, that it's very easy to import your cultural values into the church. And this is a very tricky one to get a hold of because... In the same way that it's easy to do, it's hard to see where that has happened. Because it's like, does a fish know that he's wet? Um, well, I don't know. But the fact is, is that our culture can blind us to unbiblical values and, 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 our, and the, the unique sins of our culture all around us. For example... Our culture values tolerance of all beliefs and lifestyle choices, right? In fact, if our culture has a value, it's that one. It's capital T, tolerance. And what that means is is that it is dead set against the Bible's teaching that there is one God and there is one faith that will lead you to heaven and set you free from sin, amen? Because if all religions are equally valid, according to our culture, And that's totally antithetical to Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God the Father except through me. But our culture says, no, tolerance. No belief system is any better than any other, not according to the Bible. It also means that it opposes the Bible's teaching that some things, even commonly practiced things, are sinful and evil and condemned by God. And our culture says there's no difference between men and women. That, and that is true in terms of value and dignity. Amen? Everybody better say yes on that. Okay? The Bible says that men and women are equal in their value and their dignity. And that they have, have equal value before God. That they ought to have equal value among His people. But it also says... That men and women have unique characteristics and roles and responsibilities that are given to each, even within the church. And these are just a couple of areas where the Bible and our culture are radically opposed to one another. But they are also areas where, if we're if we are bringing those cultural values into the church, that needs to be rejected repented of not embraced so let me ask you a question how are you allowing the values of the culture to influence how you interact with people in the church how you think about how things should be in the church how you respond to people in your own home values of the culture can infiltrate really, really easily, and it's really hard to see when it happens. But nevertheless, we need to hold the Bible up like a light to our life, and where the Bible and my life are at variance, I have to adjust my life, not the Scriptures. Second question, do I do harm when I gather with my brothers and sisters? Now, it's something not, that not a lot of people talk about, and it doesn't sound nice, but Paul is pretty clear that some people who come and or join a body of, of believers actually do more harm when they get together with people than they do good. Okay? If you're one of those people, just raise your hand. <laughs> All right? No, don't really. Um,. Well, but here's the thing. Paul says, look, these folks tear down instead of build, build up. They treat their fellow saints poorly, and these are people for whom Jesus died. And again, this is not to say that you have to be perfect to be here. Everybody who's perfect, raise your hand. Uh, no, don't do that. There are no perfect people here in this body of Christ, and there are not any anywhere else. You find a perfect church, do not join it. You will mess it up all right? Uh, (laughs) Trust me, (laughs) all right? Um, It will be perfect right up until you get there, right? Uh, There are not perfect churches, there are not perfect people, but it is to say that the relationships we have with one another ought to be overwhelmingly positive, amen? And if you are a person who cannot get along with other people, you need to repent and you need to change. And you need to not make excuses along the lines of, well, this is just my personality. This is just who I am. You need to fix it by the grace of God. You need to repent and pray to the Lord for the ability to adapt and rid yourself of some of the objectionable things about you. There are people like that in every church. And you don't want to be one of them that has a hard time getting along with everybody who has, has to always have their own way, can't get along with others. You're doing harm to the body of Christ, and you need to stop it. And you need to repent and go to the Lord and say, You know what? I'm a hard-to-get-along-with son of a gun. Jesus, help me. And if he could fix the sons of thunder who called down curses on everybody who didn't want to listen to what they had to say, he can fix you. Okay? Last one, examine yourself. We're about to take communion. And Paul says, as you take communion, let each one examine themselves. Lest he eat and drink of the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner and be judged by the Lord. And we all sin at various times and in many ways. But when we come together for worship, we want to come before God as we sang with clean hands and a pure heart. That does not mean that we all have to be sinless when we come before God. But it does mean that we ought to come with a broken and contrite spirit and a willingness to turn from our sin. That as we confess, you know, this was mistaught to me when I was a kid. Uh, i was i was in in a church that really loved its hebrew and greek words and all this kind of thing and, and they would they, they would talk about the word for confessing your sin as the word homologeo lo, which is you know 50 dollar crossword puzzle greek word that means to to name or identify or to agree with god that what you did was sin and and that is true that you need to be able to name your sin and say this that i did is sin but it's not simply enough to identify it as such. The Bible also talks about turning away from it. Not simply going, yep, I did it and it was sin. No. The idea is, is that you would be broken over your sin. And that you would seek to be healed from it. Not that you would simply say, yeah, it was, it was, you know, that was sin. Oh, Well. No, that this is a relationship with a person and what you have done has broken your fellowship with God and maybe with your fellow believers and therefore needs to be turned from. One of the most important things you can do as a believer when you come before God and when you come to worship is to come here and to pray like David, Search me and know me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in Me, And then he prays, wash me and I will be clean. Because our confession is not simply identifying our sin, but saying to God, I want to be free from this. I want to be cleansed of it. I want to be a different person tomorrow than I am today. I want you not only to examine and identify my sin in me, but I want to be free of it. So, Father, I'm turning it over to you, and I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would cleanse me and make me clean of what I've done. So, if you are prompted by the Spirit as we pray here in just a minute about anything, great or small, confess, and then repent. Because true worship requires clean hands and a pure heart. Amen? So let's cleanse our hands and cleanse our hearts as we come before the Lord. God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that your discipline would not fall upon us, but that we would judge ourselves rightly. Father, I ask right now that your Holy Spirit would examine each of us and prompt us in our spirits if there is anything that we have done which we have not confessed and turned away from. Father I pray. That you would heal us. Of these things. That you would wash us. And make us clean. For Father we want to be holy. And completely yours have nothing within us which is displeasing to you because we love you and we know that you loved us first and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's let's have those who are going to help us come forward and we'll pass out the bread and we'll wait for one another. That we might participate together. Go ahead and stand, y'all. We're going to pass it out now.
1: Above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were here before the world began. Above all kingdoms, above all thrones. Above all wonders the world has ever known. Above all wealth and treasures of the earth. There's no way to measure what you're worth. Crucified, laid behind a stone. and thought of me above.